So Michael did a really lovely job of introducing basic concepts in fusion, some of the problems we're facing um, with fusion. And I really want to think about where is fusion going next? Well, how can we take it further? What are the devices that we're going to consider? So I hope by the end of this talk, I will at least somehow convince some of you that stellarators, which I will introduce in a moment, could potentially be the future of fusion. Okay. So before I get started, uh, there are obviously other different types of fusion devices, one being um, inertial confinement fusion, which Archie will talk about in the last talk of the day. But we also have you know, other areas of research. I'm putting them on the slides here just to be transparent that you know, tokamak accelerators, et cetera, are not the only form of fusion. Other things do exist. But I'm not really going to spend any time on these. I just want to point out there are other areas of active research. So, arguably, the most popularized fusion device is the tokamak. Um, most of you probably would have heard of it. It's the one that makes it into the news. It's the one that has a lot of fancy science results, maybe overhyped, as we've heard. But, you know, this is arguably the most famous magnetic fusion device. So, a really quick recap of what a tokamak is. It's basically a donut. We say it has this azimuthal symmetry. I'm sure you all know what that means, but it means it's uh, symmetric with 2 pi. So how do they work? Well, we, for most modern-day tokamaks, we have these capacitors in which the tokamak is sandwiched in between, and we discharge a current. This current induces a toroidal electric field, so that's one that goes around the donut, so it would be like the jam of the donut. This uh, electric field induces a current. The current, very nicely, produces these poloidal magnetic fields, so that's like they're basically the shape of those red... Um, oh, I've got the pointer. Those... Um, red like circles up here. So this would be the poloidal plane. That is generated by um, the current that goes through, or part of it is. And this is then self-confining, right? It keeps it in this donut shape. Those magnetic fields contain our, um, our tokamak. So that's what a tokamak is. Very quick refresh for those. We can think back to Michael's talk. But, you know, as that has been talked about, tokamaks have their own problems, and they are numerous, and I'm not going to, like, skirt over that, but some real main ones that we have to consider are, one, we actually need to charge them up. This means they are discontinuous in use. This is extremely problematic when we think about, you know, from a commercial standpoint, we don't want to be connecting discontinuous problems. Oh, any second now, it will hopefully come back up. There we go. Uh, we don't want a discontinuous power supply to our national grid. <laughs> the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> um, you know, this is why we need stellarators. Um, so, <laughs> like I mentioned, they have this toroidal current. Uh, that is actually extremely problematic. It wasn't mentioned too much by Michael, but this is extremely problematic because they drive their own instabilities. There is a whole host of instabilities associated with this toroidal current. They lead to these violent outbursts that you saw on that, um, on that video that Michael played when we had those flashes of white light. That was the violent disruptions, again, partly due to these. So that, that's one problem. And a final problem I really want to mention is that tokamaks have this empirically observed density limit. That means we hit a wall of the density that we're allowed. And for some reason that we're not entirely sure about yet, we can't go beyond this. 
And as you can imagine, that is really bad for fusion. We want high densities because then, you know, fusion is more likely to happen. The likelihood of a reaction actually occurring is going to be greater if we have these higher densities. So these are some problems of tokamaks. So I'm going to propose to you an alternative that is rising arguably in popularity among some but not all people in the, in the field. And so that's the, the stellarator. So how can we think, what is a stellarator? So the way I'm going to explain this to you is the following. I take my tokamak, I you know, twist it, I stretch it, I maybe compress it in some way, just kind of really mold it around, and I'm going to get a stellarator. So what am I actually doing here? What, am, what do I mean when I say I'm twisting, stretching, etc.? Well, these purple surfaces that you see here are the flux surfaces that Michael spoke about earlier. We hope and pray that our particles are going to be confined these purple surfaces. And the idea is they're allowed to stream along these surfaces, but we don't want them drifting off of them. And a tokamak, generally speaking, has these um, like nested surfaces. So the way you can think about this is if you think of a, one of those Russian dolls, where we have one inside the other, inside the other, inside the other, we hope that we have these kind of purple surfaces, one inside the other, inside the other. And I'm going to take each of my purple surfaces, I'm going to twist it in some funky way, and I'm going to get some crazy geometry that has no, is no longer axisymmetric. So one thing I really want to draw your attention to here, because it's going to come up later in the talk, you notice, you know, tokamak, nice and symmetric, it has this two-pi symmetry, and look how simple this shape is. It, it looks nice, right? The stellarator, on the other hand, has this very non-trivial geometry. And as such, the coils that are going to go around the outside have to match this complicated geometry, it has to recreate these magnetic surfaces. So they are just going to be more complicated, and it's not as trivial a problem to create the shape in a stellarator as it is in a tokamak. So that's my vague introduction to what a stellarator is. I hope it gives you some kind of intuitive feel for what they look like. But, you know, as you can imagine, I can't just twist my device in whatever way I want and expect to get a fusion reaction that's going to work perfectly. You can just imagine that not everything is going to work. So we have to ask ourselves, what devices are we actually allowed? So Michael spoke about in his talk very kindly leading up to mine that um, we have these regions of good and bad curvature. So on the bad curvature region, this is where those instabilities are unstable. They grow in amplitude. This is really problematic. But on the good curvature region, we have you know, stability there. Um, amplitudes of turbulence are suppressed, etc. We like that side. So for tokamaks, the way that they deal with the fact that we have turbulence, etc., as Michael very kindly explained earlier, was they take stuff from the outside where it's unstable and move it all the way to the inside where it's stable. And the jargon within the fusion community to describe this is something called the safety factor, which I've put up here. It's called Q for some unknown reason. And it's just basically telling us the number of toroidal turns, so the number of times we go uh, jam way along the donut over the number of colloidal turns, which is the number of times we go the short way around the donut. And for tokamaks, generally speaking, we want this to be greater than one. And the reason we want this is because then the particles will, on average, see good curvature. You know, overall, they will, those perturbations will be stable. So that's what we do for tokamaks. You know, I care about accelerators. So what do I do for accelerators? Well, you know, they're not axisymmetric. And so it's not as trivial as it is in a, in a tokamak. We don't necessarily have an, an intuitive feel of what the good and bad curvatures are in a stellarator. 
So we have to be more intelligent, right? We have to think a bit more. And I was very proud of this joke, but we have to think outside the non-axisymmetric box. <laughs> and I will tell you, I laughed at this when I came up with it. So well done, me. <laughs> okay. So before I even decide what I'm not allowed, like before I tell you what I am allowed and what I want from my accelerator, we have to think what are excluded? What are we not allowed to do? So in order to think what I can't have, I need to know what I'm worried about, right? So there are two main problems that I want to talk about today that we have to be really worried about. So they are magnetic drift and this thing called neoclassical transport, which hasn't been introduced yet, but I will introduce you to it in a minute. So the first one, uh, is magnetic drift. Again, Michael very kindly, almost leading up to this presentation like it was planned, um, introduced the magnetic drift earlier. So the first one, just to highlight here, is something Michael spoke about, is the E cross B drift. And this is purely a drift that acts radially, and it's a result of the fact we have electric and magnetic fields in our system. We have that grad B drift that Michael spoke about earlier, where you know we have these drifts that are occurring purely as a result of a magnetic field gradient. And again, just to remind you back to Michael's talk, this is occurring because where there is a weaker magnetic field, the Larmor radius is bigger, and with the stronger magnetic field, the Larmor radius is smaller. And again, this leads to these drifts out of our device. But there's one additional thing that we need to consider, and this is very inventively called the curvature drift, and it arises because of curvature. Um, and so the way you can think about this is the particles are streaming along, and they experience some kind of fictitious centrifugal force outwards, purely as a result of curvature. So these are something that we need to contend with, something we need to be aware of. These, these lead to losses in our devices. The other thing I want to introduce here is neoclassical transport. So let's take a moment to think about what this actually is. So on the board here, I have a schematic of the magnetic field of a tokamak. So it's quite a crude schematic, so please forgive me slightly, but the general gist is all here. So we have the magnetic field as a function of a longer field line. So we have regions where the magnetic field is stronger, and this is going to correspond to that good curvature region, which is on the inside of our tokamak, where the magnetic field is stronger. We have this region of bad curvature, which is corresponding to the outside of our device, where the magnetic field is weaker. So I'm now going to invite you to consider some different particles. So let's start off with a particle that has enough energy to sample the entire magnetic field. I'm kind of representing this as a red line on the field line. However, I know energy and magnetic field are not quite like this. There's a square in there somewhere. But generally speaking, imagine my particle has enough energy to sample anything on the field line. Well, as you can imagine, it's just going to stream all the way around my device. It's going to go along the field line almost infinitely. It's just If it was never impeded, it would just keep going. OK, but obviously. No, no, nothing's ever that simple. So we might have a different type of particle, right? Let's now consider a particle that only has enough energy to sample some of the magnetic field. Well, in this case, it doesn't have enough energy to go to the good curvature regions or, or beyond, continuous streaming around. Instead, it gets trapped inside basically a potential well. And it's just going to bounce back and forth, back and forth. And it's going to be confined to, mostly speaking, the bad curvature region. So this introduces two different types of particle trajectories. So the first to do with the particle that can sample the entire magnetic field is are called passing particles. So this black surface here is, is, is the flux surfaces I spoke about earlier. And I've almost just like taken a cut 
in my in my um, tokamak to look at it, but they would just go all the way around. They have no problem. They can just do the entire thing. The other ones, the trap particles, which don't have enough energy to sample the full thing, are going to bounce within this magnetic well, right? They're going to go back and forth and back and forth. And if this is kind of where neoclassical starts coming in, is we talk about these orbits and how they relate to collisions. So collisions tend to um, enhance these types of drifts of these orbits, and that is generally speaking what we call neoclassical transport. It's not entirely important for, for this talk to really fully understand every detail of neoclassical transport, but I really want to give you an overview of what it's talking about. So these drifts outwards will cause electric fields. These cause, again, enhanced perturbations, et cetera, et cetera. And we end up finding that there is more transport because of these types of orbits. And just so you can see what these really look like, on the, um, on the left here, I have the passing particles. And you can see the black lines are giving us particle trajectories. And they just go all the way around. They have no problem. They're very happy. Um, on the uh, right here, I have my trap particles. And again, the black lines are showing us the trajectories. And you can see they kind of bounce back and forth, and they never make it to this blue side of the tokamak. So this is just how they would look in our device. So this is passing the trap particles. OK, so now let's have a look at a schematic for a stellarator magnetic field. So you can see it looks very similar to a tokamak shape-ish. It's got this same kind of like overall arching structure, but on top of it, it has these like little undulations on it, and that's arising because of the geometry of, of our device. So now when we think about our two types of particles, well, the first is our passing particles. Again, they have no problem. They can sample the entire magnetic field. This is fine. But the trapped particles, because of these more complicated geometries, they have the potential to get trapped in these small wells as well. And so I just kind of want to show you um, a video quickly of what this kind of looks like. So this is a device that is non-optimal. So the red lines are showing the particle trajectories, and currently we're looking at the um, passing particles. As you see, they don't really have much of a problem. They stick to our device quite nicely. They're not really the big concern here. But these trapped particles, as we're about to see, they start off on our flux surface. So they start off being quite happy. You'll see they very quickly drift radially out of our off of the flux surface. This is problematic. This is leading to losses in our device. It's poor confinement. In general, this is not good. This isn't what we want. So this is a non-optimized thing. You can see this type of problem is now arising. And it's obviously going to be more complicated in a device like a stellarator because the geometry is more complicated. OK. So to just quickly summarize, neoclassical transport is this interaction between collisions and geometry. And honestly, we have very little control over this part of, of our equation here. I mean, it's a very crude equation, but we have very little control over it. I can't tell my particles how to collide. Alex may or may not disagree with me, but I can't tell my particles how to collide. I can't tell them how to interact. But what I do have a lot of control over, especially for accelerators, is the geometry. So that's what I'm really going to focus on. So, you know, I've told you these are my problems. What do I demand in order for these things not to actually be a problem within my accelerator? So you can maybe just think hard for five minutes and you might come up with the idea, as Michael kind of alluded to earlier, we want these average drifts to go to zero. 
That means that as my particle goes around the device, in theory, it would be following its field line. And at some points, it might drift out away from my device. And at other points on photomag in the good curvature region, it might drift back onto the field line. Overall, during its entire orbit, I want that radial drift to go to zero. So basically, I want those things to you know, not leave the magnetic surface on average. That is the general gist of what I want. And you might think that's nice and obvious, which if you think hard, it might have been. <laughs> Sadly, I didn't come up with it. Um, and I'm sure you all remember from your physics undergrad that we absolutely love symmetries in physics. Whenever there's a symmetry, we normally have some kind of conserved quantity associated with it. And the uh, symmetry associated with these types of things, are, I'm going to focus on in this talk anyway, something called quasi-symmetry. It is a subset of a wider part, a wider um, group of symmetries, but it's one that I'm really just going to focus on today. And so for these symmetries, um, I'm saying that B has a continuous symmetry in a certain coordinate system. And if my device is quasi-symmetric, it means that these radial dressings uh, are going to average to zero, which is exactly what I want from my device. So this is going to be something I'm going to focus on. So what do I mean when I say they're quasi-symmetric? I, I told you this complicated thing that, you know, in a certain coordinate system, et cetera, et cetera. But what am I actually telling you? It means that if I take my, my stellarator here, which arguably has very complicated geometry compared to our nice, simple tokamak, I take a little cut down one of the centers, so I'm going to cut it about here. I'm going to unfold it, unwrap it. I'm going to apply my coordinate transformation. I'm going to get something that looks like this. So would you believe that these two are the same? Regardless, they are. But um, the idea is, if I have a particle streaming along here, if my device is quasi-symmetric, I can make one of these transformations and my particle wouldn't know it's not in an axisymmetric system. So it doesn't know that it's not a tokamak under this coordinate transformation. And so what, this is how we get these types of symmetries. You know, there, there's been a lot of work into it and I feel like it's slightly more understood these days, but this is what we require for confinement. Um, and just to show you that this isn't kind of something that people have scratched their heads over and it actually had applications, these are some quasi-symmetric devices that exist. Like uh, Some of them have actually been built, so W7X has been built in Germany, it's one that I will focus on today. You know, some of these devices exist in the real world and have gone on. So this is a real advancement for theory, right? We, we made these predictions, we made these demands on our symmetries, and we came up with shapes that are allowed for our stellarators. Okay, so I've told you the demands, I've told you the symmetries that I require for my stellarator, but I guess why do we want stellarators anyway? You know, tokamaks are more favorable, you might ask, surely they're more favorable for a reason. And to, to explain to you why I think we want stellarators, I think it's important to understand this kind of rat race between tokamaks and stellarators. So a little bit of a history of stellarators. Uh, they actually were conceptualized um, by Spitzer in 1951, before the tokamak was. So people thought that stellarators were going to work first. And there was kind of a funny anecdote uh, that Spitzer was, on a, was skiing. He was on a ski lift. And between the time of the bottom and the top of the ski lift, he had completely outruled tokamaks. He had decided they weren't going to work. And it was due to this toroidal current that they have. He said they, they're too unstable. They're not going to work. And so the initial influx of interest was actually in stellarators. So this is Spitzer himself with the first stellarator. And I really want to highlight the size of this thing. It would probably fit happily on this table. Um, 
But following this, there was actually an influx of, of interest in stellarators. And, you know, they didn't work too well at the time, but uh, that's, that, that's another story. Um, but following their introduction, the Soviet Union in 1968 unveiled to the world the tokamak. And it was just superior. It, it had better confinement, had better fusion properties. In general, it was just far better than, than one of these tabletop devices. And that's because this was extremely lossy. It didn't have good confinement. So the tokamak took over. And you might ask, OK, great, so they both existed. Why, why did tokamaks fly off the shelf? Why did everyone pick up tokamak research and not continue with both? And I think it's nicely encapsulated by this statement. I try to avoid hard work. When things look complicated, that is often a sign that there is a better way to do it. And I think if you ask anyone that works with me, I live my life by this philosophy. So, I mean, if we're being completely honest, you know, stellarators initially, they were neoclassically dominated. So those problems that I told you about neoclassical transport, that was a real problem for stellarators. So that was problematic. The Soviet um, Union tokamaks that were unveiled to the world were just superior. Like I said, they had better confinement, better fusion properties in general. They looked like they were going to work better. But I think one thing is just that they were objectively simpler. You know, they look more attractive to both engineers, to physicists. We feel like we can approach them more. They are just objectively simpler, and I think that makes them more attractive. But, you know, with numerical developments, with other people at Oxford, we have been able to, you know, really make advancements in accelerator physics. So we're now actually able to optimize for that neoclassical transport that I spoke about earlier. So this isn't just something I'm saying we can do, it's something that has been done. So there exists a accelerator, like I mentioned earlier, in, in Reisfeld in Germany, called Wendelstein 7X, or W7X for short. And this was the conceptual shape of it. You can see it's very complicated. The um, yellow is the magnetic field or the magnetic flux surface. And these blue, horrible, squiggly things are the coils that are required to produce that surface. Please notice how horrible they are. Um, you know, it, it, it is non-trivial and it is much more complicated than a lovely tokamak, which has this beautiful symmetry. But, you know, these things do exist. This was the con concept of it. This was the construction of it. Notice... <laughs> Not only how, how big these things are, as I'm sure Michael kind of hammered home earlier, but notice how complicated the shape is. It's not nice. It's not, and this, at each point in our accelerator, as we go around, this will change shape. It's not going to be the same here as it is here or here. You know, it changes shape as we go around the device. It, it looks messy, but, you know, physicists like continued, they, they had, um, you know, was at iron will. They continued forward. And we actually have built Wendelstein 7X. I say we as if I had anything to do with it. But we built Wendelstein 7X. It exists. It is now in operation. And it is producing results. We experiment on it. You know, it is a device that now exists. And this is a real triumph of theory because we have been able to um, optimize the neoclassical transport. OK, so this is just the more side by side, all the way from inception to completion. And now we, it exists. Okay, so what are our advantages to stellarators? You know, you might say, great, <laughs> how are they any better than Tokamaks? Well, one thing is that they are driven by these external coils. That's great because we can now have continuous operation. You'll remember that I told you that Tokamaks were discontinuous in use. We don't have that problem with accelerators. We can completely drive them by these external, um, these external coils. 
which are driven by currents. With more improvements in materials, we can use superconducting coils. This is great for power output. It reduces the, um, the power we need to drive these devices. They don't have this toroidal current, or at least we can design them to not have these toroidal currents. You know, I told you that this was a real problem for Tokamaks because it drives a whole load of instabilities and some major disruptions. But stellarators, we can avoid that completely. That's great. They have an empirically observed higher density limit than Tokamaks. I told you before that Tokamaks have this wall of density that we don't really understand, but we can't go beyond it. We don't seem to have such a wall in accelerators. Obviously, there, there will be problems, but we don't seem to have such a wall. And currently, Tokamaks are not producing good enough confinement. We heard arguments earlier that they're not doing great. And there is the potential that stellarators could fill that gap. But, you know, I'm selling you kind of a beautiful picture of stellarators that are going to fix all of our problems. But as you expected anything, for every single advantage that we have, we get a disadvantage. Um, so... You know, stellarators, they do have more complicated geometries. I cannot hide that. This is not a super attractive feature in terms of engineering, etc. They are, they are just complicated. That is something we just kind of have to, to deal with. They, um, you know, they don't have these self-generated currents. And although I've been telling you how problematic these currents are, there are people within the community who actually think these, these currents could be helpful. They, they generate this poloidal, current, uh, this poloidal magnetic field that goes around the short way around the tokamak, which is self-confining. At the moment, it's only 10 to 20% that it actually helps. But some people really want to take advantage of this. They want to see if they can push it further. You know, that could potentially be a problem, um, or at least a disadvantage compared to tokamaks. They have these bigger gradients. We don't know if that's going to be a problem yet. Accelerators are comparatively feeling kind of new in terms of the, how much we understand them. They're still to be... Um, work done there. And then the final disadvantage of stellarators, which up until now I really shoved under the rug and I didn't want to mention it because it is a very embarrassing point for those of us who like accelerators, is that we're not actually guaranteed to have these nested flux surfaces. So for tokamaks, I told you we have these kind of like Russian dolls of magnetic surfaces. We can't guarantee this for stellarators. We can say that we can, we can demand that we have at least one maybe a couple, but there's no 100% guarantee that we're going to have these nice nested flux surfaces. You know, we, we do need to be cautious of that. Okay, so there seems to be as many disadvantages as I have for advantages over accelerators and tokamaks, right? I'm telling you with everything I say that's good about accelerator in the same breath, I'm telling you the bad things about them. And you may be very well inclined to think that this is the slowest race in humanity. You know, we first conceptualized... Uh, harnessing the power of the sun 100 years ago. That was when it was first thought that maybe we could produce fusion on Earth or try and produce energy in the same way the sun does. The first stellarator was thought of and built about 70 years ago. And, you know, 70 years on, we are probably no further than a tokamak is in terms of our advancements. We're facing similar problems. And you'd be very right to think maybe this is a very slow race that who is winning is tortoise versus tortoise. But, you know, whenever we have problems, physicists are there to save the day. <laughs> I'm sure we all like to think of ourselves as superheroes from time to time. So, you know, I've told you that there are many problems, but these are ongoing active areas of research in which people are making some serious leaps in, the, in, in different areas. So 
I would be, it'd be amiss of me not to mention that we are making new strides in understanding the physics of these problems. Here in Oxford, a lot of people dedicate a lot of time to understanding fundamentals, to understanding instabilities. You know, we are slowly trying to get to grips with the physics going on here. We are making major strides in optimizing ferromagnetic field um, configurations. So what do I mean by this? I showed you those magnetic flux surfaces, you know, the purple ones and how they're all twisted. Well, I can change them in a certain way and move them about and use machine learning and other clever techniques to try and optimize these for my confinement. The other thing which I kind of want to maybe emphasize a little bit is those horrible looking coils that we had. Everyone in this room would be very entitled to say they look like an engineering's worst nightmare. How are we ever going to have that being a commercially viable thing? How are we ever going to have this working? Well, I'm here to tell you physicists are saving the day because some people are working very hard to optimize these coils for error. What do I mean by that? If you give me your magnetic uh, flux surface that I want and you're saying, this is the surface I want, please give me the coils in which I have as much tolerance as possible and I'll still get the same magnetic flux surface or the same confinement properties. And the reason we really want this is despite us all wanting to think we can do our best job ever, we can never arrange these coils down to atomic precision. So we need to allow for some kind of error because we can never get them perfect. And there has been some real strides in this area, meaning that these horrible looking coils are becoming more and more accessible to us. Um, and I, again, it would be amiss maybe not to mention the fact that there is research into turbulence. And yeah, I too, if I ever meet God, will say, why turbulence, as Michael put in that lovely quote. But you might be noticing that the overarching theme here of why we are making so much progress with accelerators that maybe we haven't made in the past is due to numerics, really. And this is actually something I, I personally spend a lot of time focusing on. So a large portion of my PhD has been to develop code. Um, so you may, if you cast your minds back to Michael's talk, where we had those um, that picture of the tokamak, it was beautiful, it was green and blue and speckled, that was actually um, done by simulating a single field line and stitching them all together. And we can recreate the whole surface. And the reason we're allowed to do this is because the, um, the, the tokamak has this nice symmetry about it. Stellarators don't have these nice symmetries. So the codes that we currently have that have been working for tokamaks don't necessarily apply to stellarators as well. If you think just kind of vaguely, each field line on my, on my surface is going to experience a different geometry, right? So I can't stitch them together. I can't just reproduce the same field line and hope for the best. So I need to be a bit more clever. And part of my research especially has been producing a code that um, simulates the entire flux surface. So now we can look at fusion simulations on the entire thing and we can see how geometry is going to influence this. So like I said, we are making big strides in these, in these areas, but Largely, this is due to numerical advancements, right? Which is why it's taking so long for, for accelerators to catch up. Okay. So why do I think that accelerators are going to be the future of fusion? You know, why do I have such strong faith in them? So I'm going to draw your, your, your attention back to the schematics on the board, which I had up before. And these, again, just to remind you, are the magnetic field strength of a tokamak and a accelerator. And I spoke before about these problematic trapped particles, right? I said, yeah, they could be worse in a stellarator because we have these more complicated geometries. You know, it's just harder to understand. 
but really this actually, these complicated geometries could be accelerators biggest strength. And to demonstrate why this could be the case, I'm gonna use one example, these trapped particles. So I told you, Anna, we could get trapped here, but we could also get trapped here, problematic. But some people in the audience may have already asked themselves, why couldn't we trap up here instead, where we have, like in the schematic, good curvature, where turbulence and instabilities are stabilized. And this is exactly why I think accelerators could be the future, or at least could give us a beacon of light forward in fusion research, is because some people who are extremely clever and probably cleverer than I am, could design a shape in such a way to take advantage of the fact that we could cause all of our trapping, for example, in the good curvature region. We could design our tokamaks, uh, sorry, we could design our accelerators in order to be favorable for fusion and favorable for, like, for what I want out of my device. So with all these opportunities, it gives scientists, physicists, people who are researching this um, space to be more intelligent with their design and to really try and home in what they want. And so this is exactly why I think accelerators are going, or could at least be the future of magnetic confinement fusion, is because this bigger parameter space that they offer, despite it being horribly complicated and somewhat scary, it offers more opportunities to control. And it means that with more numerical advancements, we could potentially adjust it in a way that we want. And this isn't just me thinking, ah, oh, this could be great. This actually has been great. So to demonstrate that this is not just entirely me having wishful thinking, I wanna show you another video. So before I showed you that video of a non-optimized device, this is now one that has been optimized for that neoclassical transport. It's actually Vendelstein 7 the, the device in Germany. So again, the red lines are showing the, the particle trajectories and you can see the passing particles again, no problems, we don't have any issues with these guys. They're, they're quite happy on our flux surface. And now we're gonna look at the trap particles, which before, if you remember, caused us problems. They radially drifted away from our device and that, that's extremely bad for fusion. So again, these are the, uh, the trap particles. They start on the flux surface and you'll see as they come back around, they have drifted away, but by the time they close back onto the same location, the radial drift has averaged to zero. And so this is an example of optimization for these types of problems. And this actually, like I said, has been built and it has gone to operation. And so this shows that theory can sometimes prevail and we can make these types of big strides forward. Okay, so, you know, just to then whet your appetite for the future of stellarators and what this could mean, these are some wacky designs that people have come up with that potentially have very good confinement properties. So I wouldn't claim to, to tell you anything about these confinement properties, but you can see they're getting a bit more crazy, like this one here is wild. Um, so this just shows that with more intelligence, with more numerical advancements, we are actually making some strides. These could be the future devices that power our national grid for all we know. But the idea here is I think the fact that we have more geometry, we have more control, we have more opportunities. You might think initially this is terrifying, but this actually could be one of the best things about accelerators. And so to, to almost finish, I told you before that we had this really slow race of tortoise versus tortoise, accelerator and tokamak. But I'd actually like you to think it's more of a tortoise and hare race where you know the tokamak flew forward. It started off great. It had a lot of advancements at the beginning. But it hit this wall. It, it now is now limited, partly because of its geometry. But, you know, the stellarator has been chugging along in the background. We've made some advancements. It's coming further forward. It's managed to reach up to the hair, and you never know. 
in the future it may completely take over. So with that, I want to thank you for your time, and I hope I've at least <laughs> I've at least tried to convince you that Stellaritas could be the twisty tugmac of the future. <laughs>